Welcome to Solutions from the Huddle, powered by Collaborative Solutions Group. We're discussing meaningful business and life topics to add motivation to your life and value to your efforts. Our show is hosted by certified professional CSG coaches who are often hired for private coaching, corporate training, and speaking engagements. Now, enjoy the show. This is Solutions from the Huddle, and I am your host, Titus Bartolotta. Man, I am so excited again to bring another great episode of Solutions from the Huddle to you. Thank you to our family that just keeps on coming back and subscribing and listening and sharing the show. It's really cool when I get emails from folks that say, um, I never heard of this show. And then this guy just kept forwarding it to me. And so I finally listened to it and you're not that bad. You know, that's what I was shooting for. I was shooting for not that bad. Um, but I just want to say thank you. Cause if it's, if this is your first episode, um, you know, go ahead and say, shoot a thank you email before we even really get into it to the person that invited you. Cause you are in for quite the treat. Um, our new best friend of the show is somebody that you're going to fall in love with, and she's just brilliant. So before we uh, get a chance to introduce today's guest uh, uh, right here on Solutions from the Huddle, we start the show the same way each and every single time. So we'll, we'll do it that way this time as well. And that's in prayer. So we just say, Lord, bless the show. Uh, bless our guest, our sponsors, just every part of it. Um, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. All right. So today, friends, uh, we have Gerilyn on the program. Now, I'm not going to say her last name because those of you that listen to the show, you already know I'm not good at names. Okay. I'm just not great at it. It was already hard enough to make sure I didn't mess up Gerilyn. Uh, she is going to tell, she's going to tell you her last name, but here's what I can tell you. She's a licensed psychotherapist, right? Since 1995. So this isn't like her first weekend on the job. She's got some experience behind her. Uh, she's playful. She's soul provoking. She's a life coach who loves to tackle the impossible. Don't you wish that you knew more people that didn't get startled and scared by the impossible? Gerilyn is someone you need to know. She's also an author and she is brilliant. And she is our guest. Gerilyn, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. It's totally my pleasure. And thank you for not bumbling my last name. It is often <laughs> mispronounced. So it's Jandreau. It's a French name. And um, I want to say something about this impossible thing. I had a client who I talked into writing a book called If It's Not Impossible, We're Not Interested. So well, uh, I like that. It got stalled out because of COVID, but um, I really do feel like there's miracles behind every breakdown and that the more impossible it looks, the more of your brilliance it's going to pull out. And, and the more you get to be, to dig deep into yourself and really find your gifts. Some of us already know our gifts. Some of us discover new ones. It's all, um, I mean, it's the nature of life that impossibilities show up even small ones, like like today, I was like, how am I going to get to the grocery store and get back in time, you know, but it happened. Of course, I dropped one of the little errands I had in mind, but these are the things that we just, we just craft reality to meet the challenges that arise in life. And God knows right now in 2021, near the end of it, after what is it now, 18 months yeah. of uh, some pretty crazy stuff that nobody anticipated. Yeah. A lot of people have have faced the impossible and found for me, COVID was a huge silver lining in every way. Jungle Gene wouldn't have gotten done because I always have this busy, busy, crazy social life and I'm here, there and every way traveling a lot. Um, so there was that. And then also I lived with my 90 year old mother 
for the first 15 months of this COVID thing. And that was, I mean, life-changing, mind-blowing on every level. My mother's a really cool person and I had no idea. She's 90 years old. Wow. Never guess her hair refuses to turn gray. Wow. She's just amazing. So we have a completely, completely new relationship. Um, I want to write a COVID memoir. And I initially thought I would call it like healing the mother wound or something like that. And I thought, oh God, how trite. So now it's called my mother didn't raise no idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You know, I, I keep hearing, I hear stories on both sides, uh, Geraldine. I hear people that say, uh, I didn't realize how much I dislike everyone that lives in my house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and that includes the dog. And then I also hear people say, uh, similar to what you just said, like, wow, I didn't realize how wonderful and how, how just remarkable the person who I, I either say goodnight to every night right before bed, um, or, or maybe folks decided to hunker up together. And so cousins and aunts and uncles or, or, or parents started to become roommates. Um, and I've heard it on both ends, but I, I'm, I'm happy to report. I've heard more of what you just said yeah. than, than the other end of it. So that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Really transformative. I, I want to get into so much of, I mean, your bio is so filled with cool stuff, like a black belt martial artist, uh, by the way, a salad aficionado. Like I need to know what these things mean, but before we get into all of that cool stuff, I always try to ask our guests, um, you know, I, I hope it's a leading question, but uh, how did it start, right? Like most people today, when they're mature and they're experienced, aren't doing exactly what they said at five years old, right? Like I want to be a superhero fireman. I want to be whatever. Generally, our life takes us down other paths. But how did it start for you? What is the story of how uh, how I get the privilege to to host you as my guest today, where did you come from? What have you done along the way? And what has guided you to be who you are today? Well, um, it's a really beautiful question. Um, You know, in terms of reflecting on my dreams as a child, I wanted to be a teacher. And in many ways I am because I'm never not teaching, especially in my professional role. I'm also never not learning. Mm. So I was always very fascinated by I'll call it higher thought or out of the box thinking. I grew up Catholic and I was always questioning the dogma going, ah, I don't know. And I went through my born again, Christian phase. And I particularly enjoyed the, what it was called Pentecostal where you'd speak in tongues and fall under the spirit. Um, and then as an adult, I got more into, you know, new age thought, which now I call trippy talk. Um, but I'm always evolving my thinking and I have a very, very open mind and I'm averse to uh, one of the biggest issues I have as a ghostwriter and editor over the years is that most people don't know the difference. And this is particularly interesting right now. Um, most people don't know the difference between a valid argument and a sound argument. Mm. And it's a super important distinction because a valid argument is one where the conclusion, the, the premises lead to the conclusion. A sound argument is one where the premises are true and they lead to the conclusion. And too many people are making valid arguments right now to defend their position. And they don't realize that without rock solid proof, not claims of science, that doesn't look at the fact that we know of scientific bias, that you can actually prove anything you set out to prove. Mm. 
these are the questions people aren't asking because there's comfort in having some valid argument that you can fall back on. But it's kind of a it's it's a cheap imitation of truth when you don't look really deeply at what's going on. Now, I'm getting a little on my soapbox and I only signed up for it for three minutes, so I'm going to stop now. <laughs> well, no, I love it, right? Because we're talking about uh, my question was was what brought us to today. And and I think mindset is is so key. You know, I I, I think that half the world still thinks that mindset is kind of hokey and the yeah. other half uh, get it. <laughs> that, that might show my bias. But I think you saying that that the way that you think and how you come to conclusions um, informed not only the five-year-old version of yourself, but but the version I get to speak to today. And maybe the best thing I heard you say, in my opinion, was uh, I'm always still learning. Like I love when I hear people say that kind of stuff because I can't imagine a, a person filled with greater wisdom than the person who says I'm not done learning. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to return to the question because uh, and drill down more specifically in what brought me here a, a year and a half ago. Well, at the beginning of 2020, I had no no desire to be on podcasts. You know, I saw them a lot and I was like, oh, that's cool. And I listened to Joe Rogan and, you know, um, oh, what's his name? I love the guy. He's an actor. He's very, very funny British guy. It'll come to me. But um, it was really because of the book that I ended up here. So I want to begin by telling the story of how how I came to write this book and what drove me to Jean Leadloff. So I was when I was a black belt, I was training in martial arts. I was a bartender on Fisherman's Wharf. Talk about something I did not think I would be doing in grammar school. I ended up bartending after after uh, I got my bachelor's degree because nothing I was doing sales for a while and nothing I did really appealed to me. But I could relate to, you know, the, the restaurant business in Pier 39, Fisherman Moor, Fisherman's Wharf area looked really exciting and I did enjoy it. And but I was um, I was nervous walking out of the restaurant at night with mm. a lot of cash in my pocket. So yeah. a friend of mine said, well, come to me with a martial arts class. So I did. And I became obsessed with it. I went every single morning. I got to train with the black belts because they had the early morning classes and I had to work at night. But um after three years of training, I was um, I was preparing for my black belt test, and I went on a vision quest. This is my new Ooh. AG period okay. out at Point Reyes National Seashore, and I'm from Southern California, born and raised. Had been body surfing my whole life, and uh, after this afternoon in the sun, practicing katas, meditating, sweating, and um, just. Not really having a vision. I was kind of disappointed. I went, well, that was fun, but I didn't have any visions. What the heck? You know, I was with a friend and I decided to go for a swim before we hiked five miles back to my car. That's when I had a vision because I went head first into a rogue wave and broke my neck, crushed C3, oh. fractured C2 and C4. This makes a very loud sound that you do not think you're going to survive. And the wow. first thought I had was, oh, so that's how it ends. And that's wow. when my consciousness began to expand and expand and expand into the infinite. And I remember just being under the water. I don't really remember. It was such a completely mind-blowing experience that mm. there, it was just happening. And I remember with each kind of, wave of expansion, I would say to myself, kind of screaming inwardly, oh, I get it. 
oh, I get it. And it was just like every question that had ever puzzled me got answered. Wow. Now, I can't, ima- I can't remember a fraction of those answers, but I remember the feeling of freedom that came. And then wow. the ultimate, so then people call it the life review. For me, it was like the life, um, how to frame it. I, I, I'm always struggling to find the words, but it was like all of a sudden, all at once, I didn't experience my whole life sequentially, but I was present with the impact I had had on people throughout my life. And mostly what came front and center were the times I had hurt someone. So it was in that kind of karmic wave. And there's, I don't think karma is something that, you know, you get karmic payback. I think karma, this is what karma is. It's when at death, you have to feel the impact, the ripple out effect of everything you ever did. I mean, imagine Mm. being, I mean, I don't even want to think about it if I were certain people who will remain unnamed. But imagine feeling the impact you had on on the whole world by choices you made. So at that moment, um, when this is happening, you're outside time and space. You're actually in another dimension altogether. You cease to, your consciousness has expanded so much that time and space are kind of irrelevant. And I, I didn't have brain damage, obviously. So I couldn't have been down there that long. But there was this moment in this reconciliation where I felt the most pain I had ever caused another human being. And it was my mother. And I was 16. And she wouldn't let me go to the JV basketball game. And I had a crush on Doug Hamlet, you know. So I, in all of my adolescent hormonal intensity, was screaming at her a lot of expletives from the top of the stairs saying, I hate you, you know, with all the fierceness that I have in my body and re-experiencing that I with, with kind of being my mother, I was myself and my mother. That's the thing about this karmic wave I'm talking about is you're not just you, you're all of it. So you're actually feeling it. Mm. And I felt what it was like, again, we're outside time and space. So I felt like what it was going to be like for her to get the phone call later this afternoon, your daughter died at Point Reyes this afternoon. Mm. And my father had passed a year before. And I knew through every part of me that she would, that it would destroy her if I died. So at that moment I said, shit, I can't die now. And went to the surface, gasped for breath and started screaming for help. Fortunately, my friend who was with me, uh, had lifeguard training and she was able to pull me out on the sand completely paralyzed. So there's a there's another whole piece of this story that I won't go into. I, I um you know when I when I was laying there and realized I was paralyzed, you know, my hand wouldn't move and it was like, oh my God, there was there there were many beats to this. But when all was said and done and I was able to crawl and actually move again, I got up the beach fell into the warm sand and I felt the whole universe just became this ocean of love. Like everything around me was holding me in this embrace that was pure love and light and the most beautiful experience, incomparable of being loved and held. And my, my thought was, Oh my God, this is what I truly am. This, this, this is what I am. This is what we all are. And then the next thought was, why haven't I ever felt this way before? Mm. Kind of the logical next question. Yeah. 
And that then became and still is my uh, raison d'etre. It's, it's the reason I'm alive doing everything I'm doing is because I want to answer that question. I think I've, I've got the answer to that question. What I want is to find my way back to that state, back to that state of being completely whole, completely at, completely comfortable in my own skin, you know, relaxed. And it's not about happy. Happy is very different than feeling joy. So it's like the joy of being alive, the joy of being given the gift of this life is so profound. And that is, that is actually, that question is what led me to Jean Liedloff. And um, I went to graduate school after this accident. And when I finished graduate school, I had been working at a drug and alcohol treatment facility for crack addicted moms and their children. And they all lived together in this big Victorian south of market in San Francisco. And there was a parenting manual and this parenting manual made no sense to me. Like I couldn't reinforce, I couldn't enforce the rules, which was like, you can't carry your baby around all the time and never lay down with them when they're trying to take a nap. You know, it was like, what? I didn't know what was right. I just knew that wasn't it. Mm. And um, after, and then at the same time, I was going to graduate school and I finished, and this was 1991. So it was before the positive psychology movement. And it was right around the time um, there was a book called Courage to Heal that was about incest. And that was like the first time that people were talking about that. Like right now, people are really talking about uh, there are a lot of topics that were didn't get talked about much that are getting talked about right now, from racism to trauma. Trauma is a big one that wasn't talked about, and it's pretty across the board. So anyway, I, um, I finished school and I was like, OK, now I can name and tell you the symptoms of all these neuroses and psychoses. I know how screwed up human beings are. I have some idea how they got that way. But what I really want to know is where are the truly happy people and how did they get that way? And I had this fantasy. I have a wild imagination that I would uh, find a time machine and go back. I had read Rianne Eisler's book. She endorsed my book, Rianne Eisler. And she'd written a book called The Chalice and the Blade that was all about ancient societies based on partnership instead of domination. And I wanted to go back to that time and see how they raised their kid kids what would that what would their parenting manual have to say and i shared that with a friend one day and she said oh you don't need to get a time machine just read this book and she handed me jean leadloff's book which is a child rearing classic she never intended to write a child rearing classic she basically told the story of her experience and her observations having lived in the amazon jungles with an indigenous tribe back in the 50s she went her first expedition in 1951, and she did five, uh, four other expeditions after that, three of which she led herself. So her book really talks about these people who are happy, joyous, and free. You know, they live in a state of blessed good cheer, I say, that is, is far from savage. And she would go back to her New York, her, you know, New York City life in between, um, expeditions and she'd look around and go, we're the savages, you know, stuff happens in Central Park that would never happen in the jungle. The way people treat each other, the scowls on their faces, the anger with which they care, their body armor, all of it. She was like, wow, that's, they are more highly evolved than we are. Mm. 
So it's all very interesting. And um, I tracked Jean down, knew her for 15 years in her later life. She had become this child rearing expert. She traveled to Europe a lot, giving workshops and such. And um, I first became her assistant and started a nonprofit for her. And um, we had quite an unusual and challenging relationship. And that relationship is part of this book, too. I didn't spare any, you know, I didn't try to make her a hero. She's human like the rest of us. But her story is quite remarkable. She led an amazing life. And uh, she asked me on her deathbed to write her biography. So for me, as a writer, I had written many books by that time as a ghostwriter. And this was the first book that I wrote where I was the sole author. And uh, that was so thus me on podcasts, because this is one of the many ways that you get the word out on a book like this. Yeah. So what a great journey. And, and, and thank you for unpacking that. Um, tell us a little bit about, about the book um, in terms of the, the reader is going to walk away with what, right? Like, so I think you already kind of, gave us kind of the feeling that we're going to walk away with, but, but I always on this show, I try to, not because I don't care about feelings and, and emotion and mindset. I do. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that, but what are the practical things, right? Cause there's so many folks that tune into stuff like this and they go, but, but what can I, what am I going to start doing tomorrow? Right. Sure. And, and the only way I know to battle the people that don't think emotional IQ is important or don't believe in positive psychology or mm-hmm. mindset, who cares? The only way I know to battle those people is like, okay, well, here's the practical meat. You, you think there's no meat yeah. on the bone. Here it is. Yeah. What's some of the, what's some of the meat that the people, I want them to get the book and I know they're going to feel things. What is it going to, what are those feelings going to force or encourage them to go do what's the, what's the action well, items? Yes. Is that, I, a, it's a beautiful is that a fair question? question? It's totally fair question. Um, so first of all, it's a bang up good read. Okay. Uh, with with I'm writing. I'm writing that. I'm writing that. <laughs> with as bang. many non-fiction, non-fiction books as I've written, I always tell people that you know the best way to make good non-fiction is to use the craft of fiction. So I'm very skilled. I have to say, I'm a gifted writer, and particularly putting my heart into this. So one of the things that this book does is it revisits her ideas. What the continuum concept is about is that there's a biological, and I will get to the practical but I got to give you the theoretical framework. Please, please, please. So the continuum concept is her, her, I'll say theory now very much proved by science that we evolved to expect a certain kind of treatment determined by evolution for the kind of critter we are. The best way to explain that is, okay, if you've ever seen or, you know, on movies or something, seen a horse give birth, The little colt is up on its legs, walking by that afternoon, trotting around the pasture. We are born incredibly prematurely. We are the most premature preemies. Every one of us is a preemie in the sense that we come out completely helpless. Now, given our helplessness, we need to be protected. We need to be held Uh, Another good way to understand this is think about a kangaroo. Kangaroos are also upright mammals. Part of why we have to give birth so so prematurely is that when you stand, when you get upright, when you go from quadruped to biped, the pelvis shrinks. You stand up, the pelvis shrinks. So 
you know, a cow's giving birth out of a pelvis that's super wide. So the, the, the baby cow or the fetus can stay in there and, and grow and come to maturity so that its legs are strong enough to hold it up. When a mammal goes upright, the pelvis shrinks. The ones that survive are the ones that give birth to premature babies. So that's evolution doing what it does. Now, if you think about a marsupial, they're upright, but they're still squatting. Their little ones come out very early and then they crawl down into the pouch. And that's where they're safe. Humans don't have pouches, but what we do have is arms and opposable thumbs. So we can tie the baby into a sling. And when Jean's book came out, the baby wearing trend, which eventually led to the snuggly and baby backpacks, which aren't quite right, but they're better than throwing the kid in a pram, um, became very popular. So that is really the most practical thing that comes out of reading this is that people who might not otherwise begin to carry their children around, whether it's in a sling or in a snuggly, their, chil- their children are where they're supposed to be, where evolution designed them to be, which is on mommy or daddy's body. So that's the most practical thing. But the book is, isn't just for parents. There, there are lessons in here about how they did business, about how men and boys are not disavowed to have their feelings. I think I would like to read you that excerpt. Please. Um, But also the other thing that it talks very deeply, and it's one of my, it's one of the things I say all the time is joy is our natural state. Now, how does that translate practically on a day-to-day life, on a day-to-day basis? For me, it means doing things, particularly first thing in the morning, because I still wake up grumpy sometimes, you know, especially lately. It's like, oh my God, there's, I'm going to put that mask on again. And oh, there's all this conflict and, you know, disagreement going on about vaccinations and all that. But so I, I have a little ritual I go through first thing in the morning and I meditate. And what I meditate on is this connection with my heart. The heart is joyous. The, deep in our hearts, we have tremendous wellspring of joy. So I connect with that first thing in the morning. Sometimes I get up and bed, out of bed and I start dancing around. There's my favorite video of all on YouTube is this little girl who she's, God, if, if you, I should be able to find it, but if you just search for little girl singing, I'm, I love my life. She sits there, she climbs up on the sink and she's looking in the mirror and she goes, I love my life. I love my mommy. I love my house. I love my cat. You know, she's just jumping around singing that. So I'll just call that to mind, even for half a minute. It's like that changes your biochemistry. Mm. So do what gives you joy. I also go for a walk first thing in the morning. At night, I snuggle with my dog before I crawl into bed. I call a friend who, I, who always makes me laugh. Laughter is uh, another thing that I always say is that um, the key to happiness is the ability to laugh at yourself. So stop taking ourselves so seriously or catch yourself when you're keep taking yourself really seriously mm. and, you know, begin to reflect on it. I love Byron Katie's, um, what does she call it? The five steps where you say, you know, you question, is this true? You know, what if it isn't true? So really mm. listening. And this is mindset stuff. But, I mean, no one can improve their mindset unless they get real about what goes through their mind right now. Like, what is it that you're thinking all the time? There's also this thing called the blind spot that that's a sub that's one of the plots in the book is understanding that we all have a blind spot that really tracks back to the earliest experiences where we left the truth of who we are. So that true self, that 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 
essence of the being that I experienced on that beach that day, somehow we get cut off for that from that. And it's, it's usually some incident early in life that we respond to in a certain way. And since that response works and we survive, the next time we have stress, we do the same thing. And this all happens completely below awareness. So that's the kind of work I do with people one-on-one in my counseling sessions that I call blind spot coaching, because it's not really counseling. It's really about looking to see what are the patterns that are getting in your way? How are you shooting in your, yourself in the foot over and over and over again without understanding why or what it really is? So that's a, that's a deep excavation and unwinding sure. that is my focus in um, therapy. You know what I want to do? Can I read you that excerpt? Please. Yeah, I'd love to hear I it. Think, um, I think this is always really instructive for men, particularly. Um, and there's nothing more powerful than story, really. I got to find it in the PDF so I can not, so I can actually read it. While, <clears throat> while you're doing that. Um, mm-hmm. So the, 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 mo- the most effective ways that people um, really make the most of reaching out to you is, is, is you help them finish their, their thoughts kind of like with their book, right? Their concepts, you um, take it across the finish line. Yeah. You, you help with the, these life coaching and therapy infused experiences you call blind spot coaching. Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously they can procure your book. That, that's really, are those the three roads that lead to you when yeah. people are trying? Yeah. The, um, yeah. I always suggest people go to junglegene.com and you can get the, if you give, put in your email address, you get the audio. It's, I made a mini audio book, chapter one. I read it and it's actually beautifully produced. Um, so you can get that. You can also go to gerilynjandro.com or gerilyn.us, which is a lot easier to remember, but you'll put it in the show notes. And that's where you can read about the blind spot coaching and my editing ghostwriting work. Mostly now I'm not doing very many books anymore, like one-on-one editing ghostwriting. I will, if it's something just irresistible, but I have a um, six month mastermind group for people who want to finish their book, four or five authors who work in a cohort There's some one-on-one coaching with me. There's weekly mastermind groups and brainstorming that I attend. There's a Facebook group where people can ask questions. I read their material and put a piece up every week and critique it and explain. So there's a lot of learning. All of my clients that I've written with, written for or with, say that one of the things they love is that they got to be better writers from working Mm. with me. So those are the two things, my my, uh, quote-unquote offerings to the world. And uh, both are, you know, just sources of great joy for me because, you know, like a lot of people in our, in our arena, there's nothing that makes me so happy as helping people, seeing them, you know, have a more joyous existence as a, as a result of encountering us, you know, having an What a great way to word that, yeah. uh, but we're going to, we're going to get the privilege of hearing an excerpt from the book yeah. uh, and, the t- and then the title, the title of the book, when they're going to your website, when they're searching on Amazon, when they're shopping. Yeah. Just jungle gene, jungle gene. That's the name jungle of the book. Gene. When you put that in Amazon, it shows you the jungle book. First thing. I don't know yeah. why, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay. So this is a, uh, this is in a chapter called the unlearning continues. 
um, Jean would come back from the rainforest and reflect. She didn't go as an anthropologist to study anything. She just lived in milieu with them. She lived in their village. It was all very passive. She didn't, she wasn't there to answer questions. The last, the very last um, trip she made in, I think the late sixties, she did, she went to test her own theories because she didn't really want to put it out there in the world until she'd really looked to see if this was true. But this I think happened on the fourth, third or fourth expedition. Uh, so she lived primarily with the Yaquana tribe. Uh, so one day, a Yaquana boy of 10 years old came to see her, screaming loud enough for the entire village to hear. Jean knew the boy. She had observed, observed him playing with other boys for weeks. She thought of him as utterly self-reliant and, like many of his peers, highly disciplined. Through her cloudy, supposedly civilized lens, the boy appeared to be a master of his emotions. She had no behavioral template for what began to unfold before her eyes that day. Here was a 10-year-old boy clinging to his mother, making a terrific fuss in front of the whole tribe. He had an abscessed tooth, but made no heroic effort to remain stoic or conceal his emotional reaction to intense physical pain. Nothing in the boy's past experience suggested he would suffer ridicule if other boys saw him in such a shaky state, nor would he lose anyone's esteem for running to mommy for comfort. Quite the contrary, everyone completely understood. The other boys readily accepted his sudden withdrawal from their fearless ranks. A cluster of children, many of whom were the boys' playmates, hovered around while Jean extracted the tooth. They gave off none of the subtle signals modern boys would use to mock or shame the lad. His mother remained close, not overly concerned, just quietly available, while Jean began the procedure. He blanched at the pain. She had no Novocaine and let out a shrill wail when she finally worked the tooth free. She plugged the bleeding hole with gauze. It was over. Exhausted, the boy went straight to his hammock, not even turning to look at his mother. He felt no need to assess the reaction of his peers. An hour later, he approached Jean's hut. The color had returned to his cheeks. He said not a word, just played with some rocks nearby as if to let her know he was okay. Then he wandered off to join the other boys. Wow. So these kids aren't conditioned the way men in our society are primarily conditioned to, in a, in, in a, essentially, it's not really not to develop emotional intelligence. It's more like it's devalued and therefore discouraged. But most men I know are, far, are, are as emotional, if not more emotional than women. But, and yet there's this conditioning that says you can't feel, don't, you know, like, don't be a whiner, all that kind of stuff that men are conditioned with women, not so much. But it's, it's a tragedy that in our society, it, the, the expression of feeling is really disallowed. You know, the whole thing about don't bring it to work, you know, like yeah. we're emotional beings and there's a cost to that. There's a tremendous cost to emotional repression. You know, I think that when the first uh, person who uttered, there's a time and a place, like when that first happened in, in human experience, it, it created this butterfly effect, right? Where people started to realize um, 
I have to figure out if this is the right time and place for whatever it is. And in lieu of knowing for certain, I'll just do nothing until I'm convinced it is the right time and place. And then we never, because of procrastination, perhaps, um, I think, I think humans, if you really want to, uh, elevate the art of being a procrastinator, just ask a human to teach a class. Uh, (laughs) We're we're very good at it. And so because we procrastinate, um, we never get around to the right time and place. We, we, We go through this analysis paralysis and then we just ignore it. And then by that time we've moved on to a different emotion, but I can tell you that most of the men I speak to, I, I couldn't agree with you more. They feel uh, no differently than, than women, um, no differently than younger humans. They, they express uh, at their highest level in, in similar ways, but it's the time. You know, generally, it's I'm by myself. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, told, I told my wife recently that I probably cry harder when I'm by myself, I, I laugh harder when I'm watching a TV show or a movie when I'm alone, uh, there's no one else around. And I realized recently uh, I was laughing so loudly while my wife was sleeping. And I thought, I wonder if I would have laughed that loud if she was awake. I certainly didn't intend to wake her. Um, but just the, the, the idea of no one's around and therefore the expression um, comes out more boldly. I wonder if that's true for women, but I do know that after asking a, no, a number of, of men, it's not that we don't feel, I think we are told to put it away, right? We're told to do it later. Um, and I think that, you know, we think it has to be an either or, right? Either be what society says is masculine and protective and providing or feel like, I think the society says pick one and yeah. we're taught that you can't do both. But when, but in today's culture, maybe more than a, a generation or two ago, we understand that feelings aren't bad and evil. We still though, don't believe that we're allowed to share them. We, we just do that by ourselves. Yeah. Right. Is that your assertion or am I like way out in left field here? No, no, no. It's very much what I'm talking about. Um, uh, I was in relationship for a number of years with a man who essentially had a gag order. You know, it was like he wasn't allowed to feel growing up. He never he never challenged that. Mm. And um, uh, it was one. This is one of the biggest challenges in my relationship with him is I never really knew what was going on with him. Mm. And I didn't realize until later when I was with somebody who was articulate about his feelings, how much, how difficult that was. And I'll never forget the day we had an argument. I left, slammed the door behind me like I often did out of frustration because I didn't know what he was feeling and it couldn't get him to talk to me. And I walked back in the house and he was in the bathroom crying and talking out loud about his feelings. And it, I was leveled. I literally fell to my knees and begged his forgiveness because I never knew. He never showed me the depth and intensity of his feelings. And that was a very, very huge awakening for me that day. Mm. You know, I do a lot of work with, with entrepreneurs, business owners, CEOs, department managers, and, and I will say that today, maybe more than any time that I can remember, emotional awareness, emotional IQ, uh, authenticity, empathy are becoming um, 
a part of the crayon box that makes up soft skills. Mm. Um, it used to be those colors were not allowed to be in the box. Those weren't, it was time, <laughs> time management, delegation, you know, give direction. But some of these pastel colors, I like to call them, are starting to be allowed, yeah. allowed into the box. And, yeah. and I would love for you to just maybe speak for a moment or two with your plethora of experience of what it's like when CEOs, when business leaders, when, when folks that have the title of boss that are overseeing humans, not just processes and procedures, but human beings, when they start allowing their feelings to be um, expressed and known, and when they make a workspace where others feel like they're allowed to be heard and seen, yeah. um, what, what does your experience show you happens to that bottom line and the productivity and the joy and the culture that happens in that space? Well, it's definitely true that the, the environment, when it allows people to be people, you know, it's very humanizing for someone to model that it's okay to, you know, have feelings, to show them on your face, you know, to allow yourself. The other interesting thing about feelings is then when they're felt, if they're fully felt, and especially if there's someone else there, so you feel felt, the emotions resolve almost immediately. They come and yeah. go. They're, they're momentary. I make a distinction between feelings, which are these momentary bodily things that move through us in response to something very real out there. And those are feelings. Emotions, they become emotions when you identify and back, actually thingify them. The word emotion is a Latin-based word. And, and I can go way into that. But let's just say that when it becomes an emotion, it becomes a thing and that and, and it doesn't resolve as quickly. It's no longer a verb. I don't know if mm. you remember uh, Buckminster Fuller said, I appear to be a verb, <laughs> which I mm. love. It's like mm. everything in the universe is constantly moving. Smart. And once you name it, it stops. So, so feelings allowed to move. That's good. Move. Emotions get stuck because you become identified them. And if, and if that doesn't find some way of resolution, which comes through expressing it and feeling felt, then mm. you get a mood. And once you're in a mood, it's like all afternoon and you may need a good night's sleep. So um, if you'll allow me, I would like to read another excerpt that speaks to this very beautifully. Um, it starts with this thing that I spoke about earlier about the New York. Do we have enough time for me to read this? Yeah, yeah, we do. We're, okay. we're going to la we're landing this plane right afterwards. Okay, but, all right. Please, please yeah. give us one more bag of peanuts and another beverage yeah. for this trip. Okay, so upon returning to the U.S., Jean was astonished to see the fierce looks on the faces of people on the streets of Manhattan. I came upon a number of scenes on the subway or in Grand Central Station and almost daily in Times Square that were more savage than anything I'd seen among the jungle people, she recalled. Of particular interest was the contrast between the faces of the Yaquana and the faces of the New Yorkers. The jungle people were transparent. Their feelings showed on their faces. They had no reason to conceal, censor, or revise what they were feeling in order to fit in or conform with social norms. They simply felt what they felt. When their faces weren't reflecting some emotion, they were in repose. Jean had never seen a New Yorker's face in repose. The faces of the people she saw around her were seldom clear. Having lived among the unguarded Yaquana for a total of nearly two years, she couldn't help but notice that the faces of New Yorkers reflected an inner battle, 
a fixed look of anger, a fixed smile broadcasting the fear it was meant to conceal, a stone-cold, walled-off look of discontent or disdain. Moreover, people often planted the seeds of distrust when the words that came out of their mouths didn't match their obvious emotional state. That's key to your question about the CEOs. People consistently scrambled their communication, creating a toxic environment of wariness and suspicion. In contrast, a Yaquana's face was like the sky, host to various weather patterns, but otherwise clear and sunny. They displayed a total lack of emotional complication, but not because their feelings weren't complex and varied. Their faces revealed an extraordinarily wide range of emotional states, but their baseline was joy. They had no need to pursue happiness because happiness pervaded everything they experienced, even grief, sickness, and death. Among their fellow tribesmen and women, they had no need to hide or alter their feelings. The atmosphere around and between them was one of deep trust and respect. Now, this is the part that really, really gets me. The stark difference, this stark difference led Jean to draw a new distinction. It seemed to her that real feelings occur in the moment and when fully felt are a complete experience with no residual emotion to carry forward and color the future. In contrast, feelings that are not fully felt turn into blocked energy that leave the experience incomplete. Jean had never seen the Yaquana complicate their feelings by denying them. Feelings were not repressed or disallowed. The Yaquana did not hold on to unresolved feelings, become, become overly emotional, and then act out in a display of bad behavior, a common occurrence among New Yorkers. <laughs> well, and maybe not just New Yorkers, right? Maybe, maybe far too many of us. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the book is called Jungle Gene. You yes. can find that book anywhere books are sold. But if you really want to, uh, to do yourself a favor, you'll go to uh, geraldine.us, right? That's G-E-R-A-L-Y-N.us. It's not that hard. It's G-E-R-A-L-Y-N.us. Um, and, and I would encourage folks to get a copy to support you, uh, but I would also encourage them to leave reviews, talk about it, yeah, that's right? a big share one. it. That's a big, big deal. Um, as we land this Let plane, me just say that the book is not available anywhere books are sold. It's available yep. on Amazon. Okay. So I said Amazon and your website. Those yeah. are the only two places. Yeah. It's not right? in bookstores. Gotcha. Okay. So guys, make sure that you do that. We also, we generally pause in the middle, but, um, but we had such a great conversation. We didn't pause in the middle. So I want to just make sure I say uh, to all of our listeners out there, take a moment to visit team-csg.com and click on the solutions from the huddle tab. You'll see all the wonderful show sponsors and, and brands that believe in the program and, and allow us to keep inviting folks that are brilliant, uh, like Geraldine to come on to the program. So, so make sure you go to solutions uh, from the huddle uh, tab on team-csg.com. Click on those brands and learn more about them. You'll know why I stand right next to them, but also make sure that the brand that doesn't miss your attention this day, this moment is our new best friend, Geraldine. And Geraldine, what, pronounce the last name again, because you know, I'm not, so I'm certainly <laughs> not going to make that mistake. Jandro. So there you go. I always tell people my name r- rhymes with Marilyn Monroe. So then you can uh, 
better. <laughs> that makes it easier. Uh, my new best friend, thank you so much for being on the program. I hope in the future, maybe you'll come back and be a guest again. That'd be great. Really fun. Thank you, Titus. Hey guys, Titus Bartolotta here with Collaborative Solutions Group. I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode of Solutions from the Huddle. If you want to hear more episodes and continue supporting our show, simply search for and subscribe to Solutions from the Huddle on any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you'll join us soon.